If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be at the end of chapter 23 and the beginning of chapter 24. So Matthew 23, I'm going to read verse 37, and then into chapter 24, I'm going to read to verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to a text especially like this in which there's so much debate and division over how to understand it, Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would give us understanding, that the main things would be clear to us, and that we would keep the main thing, the main thing, that we would not get lost in speculation, Lord, but we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ and hear the voice of our shepherd speaking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with all the navigational tools that we have available to us these days, it's now become hard to get lost. In fact, it's so hard to get lost that I would venture to say that if you actually got lost, you would be too ashamed and embarrassed to admit that you got lost. It's one of those things where someone comes and they're late and they say, we got lost. I think you really are suspicious. Did you really get lost? How could you do that? Do you have a flip phone or something? But in the days before digital technology and GPS, people actually had to use the part of their brain that was responsible for geography and mapping and navigation. I don't think, those aren't developed as much in our own brains, but they had to also devise their own unique methods of navigation. And no area of navigation was harder than sailing in the open seas. This was one of the most treacherous forms of transportation you could take. Because you're surrounded in the open seas by nothing but water, and you have no GPS technology. So it's really the opposite of our day. It is easy to get lost 
in that circumstance and hard to find your way. Well, early sailors would use a number of navigational methods, and one of them was called celestial navigation. And this is not kind of like horoscoping or anything like that. This is using the position of the stars and the moon and the sun to figure out your location and chart your course. So it's very ingenious in many ways to, to figure out how the constellations are lined up, where the moon and the stars are in the sky, and plot their location and, and make sure they're charting their course properly. Well, as we enter Matthew 24 and 25, we are entering into material in the Bible that deals with the end times, what's called apocalyptic literature. And end times material is the open seas of biblical literature, okay? We are surrounded by nothing but water. There's no land in sight. And it's easy to get lost and end up in the wrong place. And so we need to navigate it very carefully. And so what I want to do at the outset of our kind of, we're setting sail, we're going into the open seas of Matthew 24 and 25. So I want to give us some navigational tools that will help us, you know, chart this course very carefully. And so there's, there's three navigational tools that I'm going to give you. And this is kind of going to be an introduction to what we'll be in for the, the next number of weeks, unless the Lord returns, that is, of course. So as you look at Matthew 24 and 25, three navigational tools that you need to keep at hand so that you can traverse through these difficult and debated passages. And so this is kind of the sun, moon, and stars of, of biblical navigation. First tool is the context. And what I mean by context is you need to remember not just where you are, but where you've come from. Because context is like concentric circles of a bullseye. The the closer the context of the passage you're in, the more impact it has on the meaning and interpretation of, of the passage you're currently looking at. And so it's easy to get so bogged down in the details of where we are in Matthew 24 that we miss where we come from. We miss the fact that Matthew 24 and 25 flows from Matthew 21 and 23. And here's the connection we need to make. Almost all of Matthew 21 to 23 takes place inside the temple. And then Matthew 24, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And what are him and the disciples staring at but the temple? The best view that you can get of the temple, besides being in it, is being on the Mount of Olives that overlooks it. They can see it clear as day from the Mount of Olives. So in many ways, to use courtroom imagery, which we we used in the last number of weeks, Matthew 21 to 23 is Jesus as the prosecutor who's come into the temple. He he cleanses the temple, and he also calls out the religious hypocrisy of the religious leaders of that time. He's bringing his case against them. Well, Matthew 24 is Jesus acting as judge. He's given his prosecution. Now he is rendering his sentence against this hypocritical religion that has come because of the religious leaders and what they have done in their legalism and in straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So as we move from chapters 23 to 24, Jesus, as you notice as I read, he leaves the temple. Verse 1 of 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away. So he's been in the temple and now he is geographically moving out of the temple. But I don't think that's just a geographical marker. I think it's a geographical marker that is theologically loaded. Jesus enters the temple. The the Lord has appeared as Micah and Malachi prophesied. But now he's leaving and going away. And he goes just to the east of the temple and sits on the Mount of Olives. And the reason I say that that is significant, that geographical move, 
It is the same geographical move that the presence of God made in the book of Ezekiel. If you look up Ezekiel 11, it's all about God and his presence rising up from the temple and moving away to the east. And that geographical move signals the fact that God has left the building, that his judgment is coming. And this is exactly what's taking place here, I believe. So the context is key. We're thinking about the temple. We're looking at the temple. A second tool besides context is the audience. So as we listen to Matthew 24, it's easy to forget that Jesus is speaking to real flesh and blood people who are sitting right in front of him who lived during about 30 AD when this is taking place. All too often, we, we read the Bible, especially end times material, as if our current cultural moment is the immediate situation that Jesus is addressing. And this is what we call biblical narcissism. You know, I don't know if you heard that song. You probably think this song is about you, don't you? Well, many times we come to the Bible and we read, he must be speaking directly to me immediately right here and right now. And so we get out our newspapers. We get out our, uh, you know, celestial maps. We get out, you know, the latest weather forecast and, uh, and the lunar projections, right? When's the next, you know, blood moon going to be? And we start thinking, yeah, this, is, this is what he's saying right here. This lines up with, with that date right here. That is unhelpful, unhealthy speculation. That's not what we're going to do here. The best way to try and understand apocalyptic literature and and end times imagery, like we have here and in the book of Revelation, is not by looking at the daily newspaper, okay? It is by trying to put on, as best as we can, the ears and eyes of the original audience, as it were. We often think that hindsight is always 20-20, and and sometimes it is, Uh, but sometimes it's actually a disadvantage. So the disciples are looking, as it were, through a glass door that has writing on it. We're on the other side of that glass door trying to read the writing there. The words are backwards to us. We need to do our best to get on the other side of that door by putting on the ears and eyes of the audience. And so a key interpretive principle when it comes to the scriptures is this. Before we can understand what it means to us now, we first have to understand what it meant to them then. Right? We don't have a time machine. That would be really cool if we did. But we have to use the tools that are available to us. And one tool we have available to us is the scriptures that they had steeped their minds in. Their minds were not steeped in the USA Today or the Wall Street Journal. Their minds were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. That was their Bible. That was their compass. That was the map that they used to navigate through life. And so when we're hearing this imagery when we're hearing about these events that Jesus is describing, the best thing we can do and the first thing we should do is, where have I heard this before in the Old Testament? And seek to cross-reference what Jesus says with the Old Testament and try and work out the significance of those connections. And, And we'll do some of that here even this morning. So consider the context, consider the audience. Third tool is the questions that are asked at the beginning of Matthew 24. Look at verse two and three with me. And the reason I point you there is because before Jesus gets into his teaching about the end times and the temple, there are three questions that are asked from which all of the teaching starts to flow. So verse two, Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? And he's pointing to all the buildings of the temple that they've just pointed out to him. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
So he first asks them a question. You, you see all this, don't you? Look at the temple. So that's what they're looking at. Now verse three. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So Jesus takes his disciples, says, take a good look at that temple. And then he prophesies its destruction, which leads the disciples to ask two questions. Question one, when will these things be? So that's a question, Jesus, you just said that this building here, which we're super impressed by, is gonna crumble. Tell us when that's gonna happen. Then second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now I realize that second question sounds like two questions, but it's actually two events, or two ways of referring to the, the same event. The sign of your coming, the end of your age, same thing, synonyms. So they're actually thinking, okay, you just prophesied the destruction of the temple. That must mean it's the end of the world as well. So tell us when that will be and when the sign of your coming and the end of the age will be. They think they're two of the same event. And the reason I point out these two questions, what's gonna happen with the temple, when's the end of the age gonna be, is because many people come to this material and treat it as if only one question is asked. Some see Jesus dealing only with the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70 under the Romans. And so from our perspective, let's say, it's, it's all past and, and no future. Everything Jesus is dealing with here all took place in between uh, you know, this point and AD 70. And others see Jesus dealing only with his final return, the end of the age. So from them and from us, it's all future and no past. Well, the reality in, in my view, and I'm, I'm gonna use that phrase a lot, in my view, because this is, we're, we're, we're in very debated territory. In my view, these two events, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age when Jesus comes in his final climactic return are intertwined and interwoven together throughout Jesus' teaching. And it's not always easy to, to separate and unwind the two. It's like going into your garage and finding that, that outdoor electric cord you have that you haven't used in three years and you're trying to kind of twist it up and, and figure out where the knots are. So Jesus' teaching intertwines and interweaves these two events together, destruction of the temple and the end of the age. So it's like a rope. You know, you have the strands of a rope wound together. Or if you like red vines, licorice candy, it's like the licorice kind of wound together. And it's, it's hard to sometimes separate the two. And not are they just interwoven, but I think the first event functions as a prophetic forecast and picture of the final event. So I think when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, the time leading up to it, what's gonna happen with it, He's also cluing us in that that's going to be a picture and a foreshadow of what life leading up to his second coming is going to be like. One is a picture and a forecast of the other. So we've got three tools. We've got the context. They've been in the temple. They're looking at the temple. We've got the audience, a flesh and blood audience right before him, looking at a real building. And then we have the questions, the two questions. When will these things be and when will be the, the time of your final coming. So that's all by way of introduction, right? We're in open seas. We need these tools. This is kind of the sun, moon, and the stars to navigate us. And now I want to give the rest of our time this morning to considering what are the lessons we should learn as Jesus looks out at that temple with his disciples and he prophesies its destruction. What lessons are we to draw from that? 
And I think there's, there's three of them I want us to look at. And the first lesson is this. A Christless building is an empty building. We're to learn from the destruction of the temple, Jesus leaving it, that a Christless building is empty. From the sights and sounds of the temple, that if you were to stand outside of it, you would have thought that it was bursting with life. I mean, this is the place to be. This is the architectural wonder to behold in that time. This is a lively place. But Jesus sees through the facade. He sees through the mirage. And he tells us what it is really like. He gives us the divine perspective on this institution. And notice even, as he does this, the tone that he addresses this in. How he he kind of wears his heart on his sleeve in verse 37 of chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broods under his wings and you were not willing. He, he has just used, in Matthew 23, leading up to that, some of the harshest language that we have in the scriptures. I mean, he gets prophet Ezekiel on them and calling them blind fools, brood of vipers. I mean, this is not, he's not winning any friends at this point. And yet, Jesus used that harsh language not because he has a harsh heart. That's not what he was doing. This is a man who has been amidst these people for years and years and years, who has called them to repentance over and over and over, who has held out his arms as a mother hen holds out hers to gather her brood under her wings. The unrepentance of the lost in in Israel and in the world is never because Christ is unwilling to save. You see the willingness of his heart pouring out in verse 37. He is always ever ready and open to receive any sinner. Always. The only reason someone is lost is because they are unwilling to come. Look at that phrase at the end of verse 37 that he uses, that sobering phrase. You were not willing. That's the cause. That's the reason there. Not because he's unwilling to save. Well, verse 38 is where Jesus gives us his perspective on the state of the temple. It says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Notice the irony of the language he uses, the possessive pronoun he uses. What was the Lord's house? The house of the Lord, the Lord's temple, the place where he dwelt. He calls it your house. What he once claimed as his own, he now says, this is yours, and it's desolate. The intentionality of the language there is that the Lord is disowning the very place which he once called his home, the very place which the people could call the house of the Lord. And he's referring to it as their house because this is judgment language. He's leaving, it's no longer his, it's theirs. And what was once a place brimming with life, one could even say from the descriptions we get of the temple, It was a slice of Eden on earth. And now he uses the word desolate to describe it. It's the same word we get for the word wilderness. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it's the same word here. A desolate, uninhabited, empty place. And yet it would sound to us like it was brimming with life. And yet from the divine perspective, because God has left the building, it is empty. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple 
Anne was going away. As I had mentioned earlier, it's exactly connected to what happened in the book of Ezekiel. Because of the unrepentant unfaithfulness of Israel, the presence of God got up and left. The ultimate curse that one could experience was the presence of God, the blessing of God's presence, leaving that place. Now, yes, God is present everywhere. I understand that. But there was a unique sense in which his special presence was manifested among Israel in a special way to bring blessing upon them. And that is gone. That has been removed. The lampstand has been taken away. And so we've come full circle in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 21, Jesus' triumphant entry. He comes in, Hosanna to the son of David. The the shouts, the excitement. Jesus enters the temple. The Lord has returned to his house. Yet he comes in a unique way that they'd expect. He comes to cleanse the temple. He's turning over tables and the money changers and, and all the idolatry that's going on in there. And now Matthew 24, 1, he leaves. He departs from the temple. And his departure leaves the temple desolate. In other words, a Christless building is an empty building. It may be full of people, it may be lively with activity, but if Christ is not in it, it is empty. So our church, we could find or build the most beautiful building in Jupiter, right? We could we could get all the wealth accumulated here that we could find in Jupiter, and, and there is a lot of it, and we could build a wonderful building. It could be filled to the brim with people. But if Christ is not the center of the church, if the church is not filled with the aroma of Christ, diffusing through the character of the people in the building, it is an empty building. It's just a building with walls. A person's individual life could be filled with accomplishment and success and fortune such that everyone on the outside views their life with envy and says, that's a full life. But if Christ is not the center of their life, if he does not reside in their heart by the Spirit, it is an empty and desolate life. Yet consider the opposite as stated by the poet John Milton. Thy presence, Lord, makes our paradise. And where thou art, that is heaven. That's how we should think about the presence of the Lord. He, his absence, turns Eden into a wilderness, and yet his presence can turn a wilderness into an Eden. Where the Lord is, it is not empty. It is filled with life and life abundantly. Second lesson for us. As Jesus departs from the temple, as he prophesies its destruction, we are to learn that the grandest institution is fragile. The grandest institution is fragile. No matter how impressive a structure, no matter how imposing an institution, it is finite and it has an expiration date. I don't care how good the structure is, how imposing the institution, it's finite and it has an expiration date. The disciples were were so impressed by the temple. So in verse 24.1, they've heard Jesus talk about it having no stone left upon another. And, and so they, they just want to make sure they're talking about the same building. Look at this building. Look how impressive it is. I mean, the, the, the majesty of it. And, and Jesus doesn't seem very impressed. And so they're like, well, it looks pretty impressive to me, Jesus. Well, in many ways, it was an architectural masterpiece. It was very impressive. The individual stones used to build it took hundreds of people years to lift and move into the place that they're supposed to be. And 
it glittered with so much gold and precious jewels that if you were to look on it from the Mount of Olives as the sun was rising, you would have to turn your face away because the sun's reflection from it would blind you. That's how one of the, Josephus, one of the historians of that time described it. So majestic that when the sun shines on it, you cannot even keep your eyes fixed on it. On the minds of the disciples, the temple represents the most stable, durable reality that they know of. This, when they think of something that lasts, they think of the temple. This is impressive. But in verse 2, Jesus says, it's not stable and durable, it's fragile. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So it's as if Jerusalem is going to become a Jericho. Remember Jericho? The, the walls came tumbling down. He's, he's describing Jerusalem, the, the city of God, the center of Israel, as if it's like a Jericho. The walls are just going to come tumbling down. In their mind, they're hoping he says that about Rome. Hoping, oh, I hope you say Rome is going to come tumbling down. He actually says it about Jerusalem. The city you think is going to last is actually not going to last longer than the empire you want to fall down. And why is this going to take place? Well, it's going to take place because God never intended for the temple to be permanent in the first place. God never intended for the temple to be permanent. It was a temporary picture pointing forward to a much greater reality. And that greater reality has arrived, which is why Jesus said of himself in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. When he said that he was signaling that the, the, the countdown has started, the expiration date is, is near. So if the temple had an expiration date on it, you know, whenever you go shopping for milk, you're like me, like you want to find the one that has the, the most latest expiration date. Well, the expiration date in the temple says expires at the death of Christ. That's the expiration date on the temple. His sacrifice makes its sacrificial system obsolete. His perfect office and function as the great priest puts all other priests in the unemployment line. His granting of access to the Father and tearing of the veil of separation makes its repairs unnecessary because we have full access to the throne of grace through him. And because we're dealing with end time stuff, I have to say this point, I have to say it very clearly. In light of the work of Christ, to look for and desire the rebuilding of a physical temple in Israel, which which many end times views do, would be like saying to your spouse, I wish we were back in our engagement period when we were long distance and barely saw each other. That is utter folly. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you're looking for the physical temple, you're missing the greater that's here. And this is why when we read Revelation 21, 22, it says this, I saw no temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's, there's going to be no temple because there is the temple, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And so the fragility and expiration of the temple Reminds us that it's a temporary institution anyway, pointing forward to something else. But it also should become a lens through which we view the fragility of all earthly institutions that we think are grand and durable and stable. As the Apostle Paul tells us, that which is seen is temporal. It has an expiration date. So many citizens have viewed their country and government like Israel viewed the temple. It's stable, 
It's durable. It's, it's able to withstand anything. I mean, Rome probably thought this, especially after AD 70. And yet, Rome crumbled to the ground. Every country, every economy, every political system is fragile and finite. There are good ones. There are better ones. I appreciate the one we have very much. But every country, every economy, every political system is finite and fragile. The house we live in, the company you work for, the financial portfolio you have, the possessions you enjoy, they are all fragile and finite. And if we try to cling to them with tight fists and we try to to guard them and protect them as if somehow our guarding and protecting them can overcome their finite and fragileness, we will be devastated when reality hits us in the face. Oftentimes, when something is ripped from our fingers, the reason we become so devastated is because we had expectations that it was permanent, that it was going to last forever. And yet, Jesus is going to say, that's not the case. But if instead, if we guard our hearts and loosen our grip on things of earth, we will actually be able to properly enjoy them for what they are, gifts, temporary gifts, and... When we lose them, we'll be able to let go of them in a way that does not devastate us because we had our properly calibrated expectations of them. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but we need to properly calibrate our, our view of things. They're finite and fragile. I'll repeat a, a very helpful quote from Spurgeon, which I think I've used a couple times here. It says this, The Christian is the most contented person in the world, but the least contented with the world. He is like a traveler in an inn, perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodations, considering it as an inn, but putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. Christians should be contented in the world, but not contented with the world. Because we know the grandest institution is fragile, and our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior. We await the better home he is preparing for us. All right, third and final lesson. What we learn from Jesus' prophecy of the temple's destruction is that our days will be mingled with trial and triumph. Our days will be mingled with trial and triumph. And with this lesson, I want to give kind of a 10,000-foot view of verses 4 to 14. You can see I'm just getting to verse 4, and there's a lot in there, so I'm not going to cover it all. What Jesus is doing in verses 4 to 14 is setting his disciples' expectations for what life is going to be like between his ascension and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He's saying, just so you know, this is what the times between the times are going to be like. And it's going to be mingled with trial and triumph. But again, in my view, this time period functions as a prophetic forecast for what every disciple of Jesus Christ throughout history leading up to his final and climactic return what they should expect it to be like. And notice here what is so interesting about this passage. If you read verses 4 to 14, all the events that Jesus described, those are the type of events that people get super speculative about and say, oh, you hear that famine? You hear about that war in the USA today? Do you see that? This is it. It's happening now. Jesus says explicitly in this passage, don't do that. Don't do that. Where does he say that? Ah, Verse 6, look with me. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So someone comes to you 
and they point to a billboard that says May 25th, 2010, okay? First of all, we're, we're after that, so it didn't happen. <laughs> but if they do something like that again, be like, I think you should read what Jesus says in Matthew 24. And then look at verse eight. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So I, I have not experienced birth pains personally, but I, I know someone who has, because I have five kids. And that's just the beginning. That's why I always tell you, I mean, this is just starting. Like, you better you know, buckle up, all right? <laughs> have I, I have not said that. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's, birth pains are just, the early term is telling you, like, okay, get ready. Right? Is that right? Okay, that's right. That's what Jesus is saying. With these things, these are, these are the beginning of the birth pains of what is happening. History is, is moving somewhere. There, there is a telos, an end game to it. But these are just the beginning. And so history leading up to the destruction of the temple is going to be like this. But that's like the, the architect's 3D model. He's saying, okay, this is the building we're going to build, but here's, here's the 3D model of it. History leading up to the return of Christ, climactic return of Christ, that's the actual building based on the 3D architectural model, which the time leading up to the temple's destruction was. That's how we're to see these. So as Jesus tells his disciples sitting right here in front of him, here's what life is going to be like leading up to that destruction. By extension, he's telling us, here's what life is going to be like leading up to my return. Calibrate your expectations accordingly. Because we can go in two extremes. Some go to this utopian extreme. They, they view history as leading to this utopia. If we can just get the right candidate, you know, the right amount of social services in place, the right amount of you know, just and equitable things, then we all live in perfect harmony singing Kumbaya together. And, and that's one extreme. And, and many views of history, especially political views of history, see it that way. And yet J.C. Ryle gives us this good warning against seeing this extreme view of a utopia. He says, we are not to expect a reign of universal peace, happiness, and prosperity before the end comes. Jesus never promises us that. If we do, we will be greatly disappointed and deceived if we expect that. Our Lord bids us to look for wars, famines, pestilence, and persecution. It is vain to expect peace until the Prince of Peace himself returns. But the other hand, some people have a very pessimistic doomsday view of history. Right? We're, we're on the Titanic. We've hit the iceberg. You know, the band is playing. It's, it's all going down. Right? And, and some people, all they do is sit around and watch the news and cringe in crippling fear, waiting for the latest doomsday headline to come. Right? What, what, what's the next catastrophe? A hurricane is coming. They're the first in the line to hoard the toilet paper. The pipeline has been hacked. They're filling up plastic bags with gasoline. Okay? That really happened recently. I just I hope they get the help they need. Okay? That's another extreme. A utopian view or a, a doomsday pessimistic view of history. And yet, look what Jesus says in verse 14. To the, to the pessimistic doomsday view. I think the reason he ends verse 14 this way is because of that. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So Jesus puts in that very positive, triumphant note in there to protect us from that doomsday view because it is easy to look at the circumstances going on around, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, persecution, and think, we're, we're done for. There's, there's no way the church is going to advance. And yet Jesus says, no matter how rough the cultural seas get, the ship of the church is going to sail on. The, the ship of the church is going to reach its destination 
and make it to its port. The, the church will prevail and the gates of hell will not stand against it. You think of Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy. He's in prison. He says, I am bound in chains. But Timothy, the gospel is not bound. Don't look at my circumstances and put that on the gospel advancement. I may be bound, but the gospel will never be bound. Yes, there will be turmoil in the world, wars, political conflict, natural disasters, persecution. And there's even going to be trouble in the church. There's going to be schisms, divisions, heresy, people walking away from the faith. And yet Christ will build his church and it will be triumphant. So when I think of the time between the times, the the best metaphor I, I can think of is Jesus describes the time between his comings as brackish waters. I don't know if you've been in brackish waters, but part salty, part fresh water. What he's saying here is, is the salt water of a fallen and broken world, you're going to feel it. You're going to taste it. But also the fresh water of the kingdom, which is to come, which is broken into the present, is here as well. So you will see some triumphs and some victories. You'll see people coming from death to life, sins forgiven, things restored. And yet we have to know that there's going to be both of them. There's the, the salt water of a fallen world and the fresh water of the kingdom which is broken in to this fallen world. And until the Prince of Peace returns, we can expect our days to be brackish waters, mingled with trial and mingled with triumph. And while we eagerly await the return of the Prince of Peace, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, help me run the race with perseverance. Help me make it to the finish line. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we think about the life that you have called us to expect in this world, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to run the race set before us with endurance, that we would lay aside every weight and sin which weighs us down, and that our eyes would be fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we also pray that our hearts would be set on our citizenship, which is in heaven. And from it, we would await our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that daily we would long for his appearing and love the day of his coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.